are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. To many outsiders, the British class system is a strange and impenetrable beast. It is hard to understand the many intricacies and seeming arbitrary rules which no one is taught but everybody appears to osmose from childhood. Much of the attitude between classes is also bizarre to others. It is a shock to foreign nationals how much we hate our own poor for being nothing but poor, whereas in other countries they are able to be recognised with compassion as people who are no less deserving than others. In Britain, being poor is akin to a moral failing. What made Britain so different? Why so much antagonism and bad blood within itself? To answer this question, we need to go back to the Middle Ages. For a long time, the raiding Norse had been the scourge of coastal communities among the British Isles. At first, they were very much in favour of the rape and pillage method, which had been in fashion for time immemorial. However, over time, they began to see Britain as more than a cash cow. The Northern and the Western Isles had been changing hands and would continue to change hands between Scotland and the Norse for centuries. However, the milder climate and essentially the flatness of England, which for people who came from a region so mountainous only 3% was farmable, was incredibly attractive. Hence, the Norse turned from raiders into settlers and changed the cultural map of the British Isles. However, the Norse had not been only focusing on Britain. They had travelled as far as Istanbul and were foundational in the forming of Russia and the discovery of America. Like the Celts before them, they came and conquered but did not create an empire. One of the areas that the Norse settled was Normandy in France. Like many other settlements over generations, they took on the customs of the locals, melding them into something new. It is reported that the rest of France was rather terrified of the Normans. After four generations of settlement, however, they started to set their sights on England again. Then we have 1066, the Norman invasion and years of brutal suppression of any opposition. The effects of the harrowing of the North and attempt to control the North of England by both slaughter and economic obliteration can still be seen today. In what was a key move for future British culture, the Normans took over the aristocracy, the ruling class, and built castles. They were an invading force who had to subdue the local population. While they had the military power, they did not have the loyalty or love of the people and therefore were in a precarious position. This is the thing that perhaps most moulded the psychology of the British aristocracy, a class above, better, superior than those they had taken over from. They had to believe this in order to keep on justifying the lengths they had to go to subdue. 
This attitude came out most strongly in the English aristocracy. The Normans who went to Ireland, the Anglo-Irish, were known for becoming more Irish than the Irish, and the Normans who went to Scotland also assimilated with local culture to become indistinguishable. An act presumably of self-preservation, being more isolated and farther from the centres and sources of their power. But those invaders who remained in England tended to remain more separate from the people they ruled to the point of speaking a different language. It is an England of all the cultures of the British Isles where you see the most dislike and separation from each other felt in a keen awareness of the habitus of class and a tendency towards infighting and separation whenever an outside threat cannot be perceived to create a sense of unity. It sounds a little like the class version of the paranoia of a usurping king. A particular speciality of the Norman descendants, especially towards the end of the Plantagenet line, we can see in Henry Tudor, the seventh of England, a king who was not born to position, but through a series of twists, turns, luck and coincidence, managed to become king. Known as the Winter King, he wasn't seen as much fun, penny-pinching from being brought up in precarious poverty. While he could be accused of paranoia, he did have to fend off multiple plots against him and pretenders to the throne from those who were loyal to previous rulers. This paranoia trickled down the generations of the Tudor dynasty, and we can see his descendants, Henry VIII, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth I of England, all pretty quick with the chopping block and torture instruments. This fragile sense of superiority tempered with paranoia, which started with the Norman conquest, marinated over generations and centuries coming to its full-flavoured evolution in the greed of colonialism. However, it was not fully exported and a potent brand remains in British culture, leading to a suspicion and dislike between those who occupy different rigid classes, which everybody understands and everyone agrees to respect, knowing no other way of doing things. There have been periods of time, though, where optimists in Britain have said that class is over. And while the upper classes have in some way declined, in other ways it's morphing and changing into something new. And with current economic problems and housing crises, it's threatening to become as rigid as in the past. When it comes to true crime, class is often not focused on as a contributing factor. However, given that criminal investigation and the justice system in Britain is still staffed by those who grew up osmosing the system through their skin from birth, it can and does mirror and replicate the biases that can be found out in the wider world. For the early 20th century, if the upper classes were involved in fictional crime, it was dapper men like Raffles, the gentleman thief, or Lord Peter Whimsey and Paul Temple. They always knew best. They were glamorous, daring and far more intelligent than anybody else. The inference being that there is something natural in their DNA that means they can intuit and strategize in a way other mere mortals can't. But what about the aristocracy when it comes to true crime? 
there is one name that will always come up, Lord Lucan. John Bingham, the seventh Earl of Lucan, is not the first of his lineage to become notorious after one of them was involved in a disastrous charge of the Light Brigade. However, most people will always think of the seventh Earl when they hear the name and the murder of his family's nanny and the continual mystery surrounding where he is. Lucan, handsome and well-educated, popular and married with a young family, would have appeared to many to have it all. He was even once offered a screen test for the part of James Bond. Under the facade, though, was a man whose life was falling apart. Nicknamed Lucky Lucan by his friends, he had decided to take up gambling as a profession, something very few people can do successfully. Lucan was not to prove to be one of them, and he was soon to find his losses outweighing his winnings. At the same time, his marriage to his wife began to sour. In previous centuries, divorce had only been for the very few, and given that a woman was unlikely to be given access to her children by a court, none but the bravest tried it. Thanks to a law called coverture, a married woman's legal existence in England had not been considered separate from her husband's, something inherited from the Anglo-Norman common law system. However, by the time Lucan's marriage collapsed, aristocratic husbands could no longer rely on the law coupled with their influence and power to get their way. Lucan was devastated to find it was likely he might lose custody of his children and his mental state became worse, increasing his drinking and talking about killing his wife. It was not, however, the wife that Lucan killed. You can imagine that in the early 70s, a man of his influence would probably have been able to kill his wife and get away with it, given the still woeful attitudes towards intimate partner violence and murder that persist 50 years on. However, Lucan killed Sandra Rivet, his children's nanny, instead. She was brutally beaten to death with a lead pipe. It is generally accepted that Lucan was unlikely to have intended to kill Sandra. Rather, he'd gone hoping to kill his wife and make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Sandra was a similar height to his wife and she was not expected to be working that evening. So it's likely that he only realised his mistake once it was too late. It is then suggested by his wife that Lucan attacked her, but had to give up when she grabbed his balls, a fitting metaphor for their separation. He put her to bed to look after her, ominously asking his wife if she had any barbiturates, and when he left to look for them, his wife took her chance and escaped. Lord Lucan was last seen by friends in Sussex, who he drove to see immediately afterwards. After that, no one knows his whereabouts. There have been sightings of Lord Lucan on almost every continent in the world. He has been a hippie on a beach in Goa, a Buddhist monk, a businessman in South America, a pensioner in Australia. In fact, name a hot country and you can probably find there will have been a Lucan sighting there at some point. It became as popular as Spot the Ball. Living a life of relaxation abroad was seen as a fitting end to those who would prescribe the Bond version of Lucky Lucan. It's not the only theory. 
probably more likely was an act of suicide, or as some have suggested, once Lucan became too much of a problem for those who helped him escape a murder. He was in the English Channel. He had been eaten by tigers. The theories again proliferated and rumours, conjecture and hearsay have swirled about this possible ending as well, to the point where the case has become more about its possibilities and less about the cold hard facts. During the investigation, there was disquiet that so many of Lucan's circle of friends hampered the police investigation slow to agree to interviews, not forthcoming with information. They had closed ranks. This, of course, would not have been that unusual, given the history of the aristocracy. Police were simply seen by many as akin to a servant. There when they were needed, but when not needed, a nuisance that would do better to remain silent and know their place. Lucan, in his death or disappearance, became bigger than life in some ways. The man at the centre was forgotten, and it became eclipsed by ideas and clichés about class. There has been something else that's been forgotten too. The woman who was murdered, often referred to first and foremost as the nanny. She remains a figure who is rather in the shadows, even though it is her death that catapulted Lucan from being another chapter in his family seat's history and dusty tomes for history fans to pour over to a popular culture reference, the sort of name that has become a shorthand to describe something much bigger than it is. Sandra Rivett left behind her a son and her parents. Her son is still trying to track down Lord Lucan and bring him to justice. Maybe a less glamorous story than the handsome Earl, his gambling and tempestuous marriage, but it is one that is more relatable for most people. So why, when we have a story that is still alive and beating, are we so obsessed with looking at it through the lens of the murderer? This could be partly because of the great man theory of history, which we discussed in the last episode in relation to how the dramatisation of the Jimmy Savile story was handled in The Reckoning, starring Steve Coogan. I, however, suspect that it is more likely to do with class. Servants do not grace the pages of history, no matter how much they make history be able to happen. Servants are meant to melt into the shadows to perform daily but unappreciated rituals. Servants are meant to be grateful for the little that they get and, above all, quiet. What can be more quiet than the dead? So Sandra Rivet, like armies of the peasantry, the working class, the indentured, melts into the background and the man who killed her is given front and centre stage. No one clamours to hear Sandra's voice. No one parses her life and its intricacies. She is instead reduced to a mere thing in a rich man's fevered dreams. Thank you.
You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.